Thank you. Good morning. Well, a lot's happened since last Sunday. Um, the brothers returned to their father and they explained uh, their entire visit with, with the, uh, the ruler, the, the man uh, next to Pharaoh himself who runs the show, the vice regent, I guess we could call him, and they've come home with the, with the grain and they've uh, told their father that, uh, that they've got to take little Benjamin, who's probably about somewhere between 26, 27, uh, back with them. And so after that drama, uh, they do. They take Benjamin back down to Egypt to, to buy some more grain. They're in the middle of a famine. And uh, while they are there, it's a very positive experience. And Joseph sends them on their way uh, with great bounty. But then they just barely get outside of uh, the city, so to speak. And Joseph says, uh, go after them and uh, arrest them because uh, they've stolen my special drinking cup, which he had buried in the grain sack of little Benjamin. So it's a pretext to bring them back before him. And of course, they're very frightened by the discovery of this cup. They didn't know who had done this, and uh, their, bags are, their baggage is searched, and they find it is in Benjamin's baggage. So they're all brought back, and it's a very scary moment, very tense. Everything's on the line. And Judah, uh, Judah steps forward and asks for a word with the vice regent, whom we know to be Joseph. And he begins to talk to his brother. He doesn't know it's his brother about uh, this, this boy that uh, he's arrested and he says, in effect, take me instead. And he begins to talk about his father and the fact that his father won't survive um, if they don't bring Benjamin back. Because Benjamin's uh, firstborn son of Rachel, his beloved wife, um, he didn't make it. He died strangely. Of course, he doesn't realize that that brother that he thinks has has dead, been dead for some time, is right. He's speaking to him, and so uh, that's kind of where we pick it up. Joseph is listening to uh, to Judah tell the story of his family and ask him to allow ask Joseph to allow him to take the place of Benjamin for the sake of his father. And let's uh, I don't <clears throat> pick it up at chapter 45 here, verse 1. Well, let me back up one verse because we'll just pick up the last word of Judah. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would... Find my father. 
Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it. And the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Now you just, you got to imagine that for a second because he has been using an interpreter to talk to them. You think about that. All the conversation that's taken place, there's been an interpreter between his brothers and Joseph. They don't think Joseph knows what they're saying. They speak a language that's foreign to Egypt. And now Joseph blurts out in Hebrew, I'm your brother. (laughs) I don't know. No wonder they're dumbfounded. No wonder they're speechless. No wonder they're super frightened now because before they were on the hook for theft. And he was threatening. In fact, when, uh, when Joseph's servants caught up with them and accused them of stealing, stealing the vice regent's special drinking cup, they denied it to the point that they said, if any one of us has it, that person should be put to death. See, they're just that confident that they didn't steal it. So then when they find it in Benjamin's bag, that means Benjamin's supposed to be put to death. Judah steps forward and says, let it be me. We just can't go on. Our dad has been through too much. And he knows he's to blame for that along with his brothers. And now, not only are they on the hook, but now they find the guy that's got them on the hook is the guy that they sold into slavery and wanted to murder at one point. So this is a very bad situation, to put it mildly. I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed, which is uh, an understatement of English translation. Uh, Yeah, they were stunned at his presence. They can't wrap their heads around it. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me. (laughs) let me get my hands on you. (laughs) I'm sure they were confused at what that means, but he says, come nearer. See, he sent everybody but his family away. Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. And the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to your father, to my father, and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the house of Goshen, and you shall be near to me. You and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. So during that entire time, his brothers didn't say a thing. I doubt they could. This is all about forgiveness. C.S. Lewis wrote, everyone says forgiveness is a lofty idea until they have something to forgive. That's from his work, Mere Christianity. If you've never read Mere Christianity, I highly encourage you uh, to do that. I'm sure you can get one very inexpensively online or perhaps uh, some kind of a PDF if money is an issue. Or you can come and borrow mine, it's well marked. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. And yet, that's our business. We're in the forgiveness business because we have been forgiven by God. That's kind of a clever way to put it, but that is an extremely central fundamental truth we are in the forgiveness business because we have been forgiven by God accepting God's forgiveness is a game changer have you accepted 
God's forgiveness. Have you accepted God's forgiveness? His forgiveness is offered generously, abundantly, lavishly in his Son, Jesus Christ. And it is in his Son, in his name, in his authority, in his life's work, that this offer of forgiveness is extended because Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection validates the truth of that forgiveness which he offers. And I press this, not that you, as you listen to me now, should think about someone else in the room other than yourself that I am obviously speaking to. That is not the case. It is you. Not because I'm trying to press you or make you uncomfortable in any way, but this is so incredibly central to the life of our faith. Otherwise, everything that we hold dear is just an artifact that we admire, something proudly displayed in a museum unless we take this truth, I am forgiven, to heart. If it does not touch your life, then everything I have to say today or everything that we cast our eyes upon in this passage, in this gospel, is just so much dead wood. Unless we realize, if, unless we feel unless we are liberated, unless we're set free by God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness, actually, it shows up in how we see ourselves, how we see others. It shows up in our feelings. Of course, that's not the case if it's just some kind of cold truth that you keep in the refrigerator. But if it's a truth that melts your heart, then you begin to come alive. And you understand what this whole Christianity thing is about. Because it's about forgiveness. Not a mathematical equation. Not a trial in some court somewhere else, but about a trial in your own heart where you're set free. No strings attached, except to fully go as one forgiven, and so forgiven, so really forgiven, that you can no longer go through life without being a forgiver. You see, forgiveness is, just to give you one small example, forgiveness 
is the answer to so much, if not most, of the anger that I have experienced, that you have experienced, the anger that people experience in this world. Unresolved anger leads to bitterness, hostility, and revenge, but forgiveness leads to freedom, even to reconciliation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 45, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be like your Father in heaven. The Apostle Paul said, and this is in Ephesians chapter 4, 31 and 32, put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, evil, slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. You see, and then we come to Genesis, and there's no one in the book of Genesis that better illustrates the fundamentals of forgiveness than Joseph. And no chapter more clearly shows how to forgive than chapter 45 and verses 1 through 15. But it's not easy to do. For many, it's impossible without God. In fact, without God, I would see no point in it. But because of God, and because God is a forgiver, in fact, the bullseye of everything God did is forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ on the cross and everyone who accepts that forgiveness on the cross. Why? Because forgiveness restores relationship. And God is all about love. Love me, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the most relational law in the universe, and it is the centerpiece of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is the yoke of Jesus Christ whom God sent and is recorded as the incarnation of the love and redemptive work of God. And everyone who writes in the New Testament about what God did in Jesus Christ captures it in the language of God's love for the world. Yes, forgiveness is important. Because there cannot be love without forgiveness. Because we live in a world that is broken. If we accept what Paul says in Romans, all have sinned then that means that we need a lot of forgiven. 
Because if someone sins, it affects someone else. Sin doesn't just happen in a vacuum. So if we're going to love this world in the name of Jesus Christ, we've got to get prepared to forgive. And if you haven't been forgiven, then you won't be able to love. You won't have it in you. You'll have anger. You'll have resentment. You'll have rage. You'll have bitterness. And it'll eat at your soul and it'll shrivel you up. There'll be no joy. There'll be no light in your life. How can you glow for Jesus Christ? How can the Holy Spirit work in us if there's no room for Him to move because we are so cluttered with all the effects, the impact, the disease of unlove and unforgiveness? No, it's not easy to do. Can't happen without the Lord. Helmut Tilika, who I was introduced to years ago, a German pastor, theologian, author, lived through the horrors of Nazism in his own country, a very deep thinker, wonderful, wonderful writer and Christian. He said, this business of forgiving is by no means a simple thing. I am always on the point of forgiving, but I never forgive. I'm far too just. Let that sink in, folks. I'm far too just. You see, when you're just, it's very hard to forgive unless you know a grace that's greater than all our sin. All my sins, your sins, all my faults, all my self righteousness built on my house of cards made of justice, made of right and wrong. That always gets in the way of the gospel. See, there's no need for justice if you're living by love, if you're living by God's grace, if you're living out the gospel. There's no law that's necessary for us. Love does not sin, folks. Love does no wrong to its neighbor. Love is above the law. It's not regulated by the law. It is the righteousness of God. It is His grace and mercy. But when we get all caught up in our justice. That's what makes us hate people, makes us vengeful, unmerciful, makes us go after the wrongdoer, seethe in anger, and the joy is robbed of us. 
That's what he's talking about. Something familiar to me, and I believe familiar to us all. The only remedy, said Tilaka, was his realization that, and I quote, God had forgiven my own sins and had given me another chance. I hope you all know that today. It's the beginning of a whole fresh start. Even today, even today, dare to forgive. Dare to forgive. It offers a fresh start. Joseph shows us, Joseph teaches us about forgiveness here in this chapter. So there are just three things that I quickly want to lay out for you. Make it more than words. Dare to forgive, but make it more than words. We'll see that in verses 1 through 4. And then make it from God. Make it from God. You see the chain of... uh, how this works. I'm forgiven of God, therefore I find it in myself because I find it in God to forgive others. And then make it about the future. In verses 1 through 4, man, I get choked up when I see those opening verses and Joseph ugly cries. Have you ever heard that expression, ugly cry? Yeah, because why, why do we call it an ugly cry? Because when people cry like that, it's ugly. They scrunch up their face. They, it, we're undignified, totally undignified. We're broken. We don't care what anybody thinks. It's raw. It's not for the camera. And that's a very important point of what's happening here. You see, to make forgiveness more than words, it involves a role change. And that's exactly what we see. Joseph changes roles. How many of us have been prohibited or impeded in some way, we, we, we hit a roadblock when it came to forgiving others. And maybe that roadblock was our own sense of self. Who am I? I'm, you know, that, that kind of I'm somebody sort of thing. And because I'm somebody, then I can't forgive this or I can't repair this relationship unless that person goes through all kinds of a role change. But I don't. And that, you see, if you can grasp that, Joseph literally goes through a role change. He is the father of Pharaoh. He is next to Pharaoh. There is no one closer or more powerful In fact, in many ways, he's the agent. He is the representative of Pharaoh. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he kind of takes that all off. And he says, I'm your brother. That's a huge role change. And I have found in the experiences of my life where forgiveness was an issue, 
that a role change is often necessary. You can call it, we need to humble ourselves. We have to drop our pretense. We have to set our pride aside. Whatever you want to call it, usually there's some of that stuff that we, we would never ugly cry. And what I'm saying is a role change, we maybe need to do some ugly crying over some of the things that we, we stand tough on. And maybe we need to look past ourselves to what God would want to do through us because we're in that one position that only, us, you know, only me or only you can maybe make a difference in that situation. So drop the role that's necessary to be dropped in order to forgive. To or, in order to restore relationship. And notice in verse 4, he asks his brothers, he says, come near. Before, they wanted to stay as far away as possible. I'm sure they are still very wary as they come forward. But notice the intimacy that Joseph is establishing because he has made a, a role change. And I am suggesting to us that that's something that we need to understand is a very real part of the work of God in forgiveness. Make it more than words. Make it more than some kind of formula or transaction. Joseph never uses the words forgive. And yet it just, it breathes forgiveness. Everything that he's doing here is about forgiveness. There is a heart change. It's everywhere in the New Testament, everywhere in the gospel, however you want to put it, it's, it's very central. I think it shows us the heart of God, but it gives us instruction for how we can live like that. Or maybe it just transforms us a bit. But we say it this way, uh, or we call it the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or treat others as you want to be treated. In other words, what is that when we say that? Put yourself in their place. Think about life from their perspective. There's a word we have for that. It's the word compassion. Compassion. My hunch is that's taken from the Latin when you break down the word compassion. Con, forehead to forehead, face to face. In other words, passion is that, we call it like sympathy. Seeking to understand what's in another person. Using our own experience as some kind of a gauge. That's not all, though. There's love your neighbor as yourself, as myself, as yourself. Love your neighbor. In other words, you couldn't love look, you couldn't love a person better or more
any other way than loving them the way you would want to be loved. Isn't that profound? Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, in the Bible, they recognize that we love ourselves supremely. Now he says, try to love others like that. Or how about these words? Love one another as God in Christ has loved you. So there are two, three standards right there that are so simple and plain for us to use. We don't need to be brain surgeons or rocket scientists. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness well, it's a, it's a miracle of God's grace that no longer sees an offense as something that separates us. Make it more than words. Make it from God. Joseph, as I said, doesn't use the words, I forgive you. Rather, He makes what God has done the primary motivator. Look what God has done. You know, that could be a way of beginning to share our our faith in Jesus Christ or our commitment to Jesus Christ to people we know. We could restore relationships and in the process, instead of saying, I forgive you, We just say, you know, God has done some incredible things in my life. And I don't want anything I've done or you've done to stand between us. To see an injury with the eyes of God's grace, it helps me to look for some wrong of my own which is like the one that I now resent in you and realize that God forgave me and then I realize I can forgive you. Hope that made sense. Hate the sin, not the sinner. Have you ever heard that? I always thought that was kind of silly myself. I read uh, C.S. Lewis, he actually thought that too. In fact, he asked, how can you do that? You know, separate the two. He thought it was silly, and he thought it was superficial. And then he writes this, and then I realized there was this one man to whom I had been doing this all my life, namely myself. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? We do that all the time. We hate the sin, but we love the sinner. (laughs) We are in the forgiveness business, for God has forgiven us. We just have to dare to forgive. You'll recall Joseph said in verse 15 of chapter 40, I'm innocent. He was in prison, and he said, I shouldn't be here. That's what he was saying. I shouldn't be here. Get me out of here. I don't deserve this. I'm innocent. And now listen to him. 
God has done this. God has done this. Sometimes we need perspective. That's where faith comes in. It's not always easy. Sometimes we walk by faith. We do the right thing. Remember Joseph named his sons? I love it. Hey, forgotten. Come over here. That was the oldest, forgotten. And then, uh, then there was fruitful. Hey, fruitful. Get over here. Will you? Go get your brother forgotten. Because they represented God had made him forgetful. So he didn't have resentment, hate, anger, bitterness. You know, that shortens our own lives. And we've got nothing to give because we're so needy. Forgotten and fruitful. Let that be of our lives too. And then third, let it be about the future. Make it about the future and not the past. In God, we imagine a better future. God gives us a new perspective. I think it's so beautiful the way Joseph um, lays things out. He, he wants them to report word for word what he He's sending a message to his father, but he's sending a message to his brothers and to them all. He wants them all here. He says, in effect, look, we have this past. We've been broken, but look what God is doing. And look what God wants to do in your life and in mine. Let's do this together. In leadership, it's been so helpful for me to realize that when I have to do confrontation and deal with what is, that I create a future with hope in it, where we want to go, why we're doing what we're doing so we can go there together. I even use the expression, let's join hands and go to higher ground together. But so often, this whole forgiveness thing, we can only see backwards. We walk backwards. And I'm saying, when it comes to forgiveness, turn around and look into the future. It will help you do the hard work of forgiveness. If you're thinking about what can come of it, and what, not just what caused it. Shelly and I, uh, we had a real rough spot in our marriage. Real rough. I actually, and I was training for ministry. But the nature of, of what had happened, no, it was uh, the, everything just, Shelly had some real doubts about whether she loved me and wanted to remain with me. That was about the five-year mark. And I'm not trying to be over dramatic, but just honest, I, I actually thought there was no future for me. Everything that I had given my life to was kind of kaput. And uh, if I hadn't been so chicken, I would have taken my own life. I tried. 
I didn't want God whispering in my ear or putting thoughts in my head, which he was doing. He kept telling me to do something I desperately didn't want to do. He told me to love Shelley and tell her that God wanted us to be together and that things would get better and we would grow old together. And I didn't think I could do that. To me, at least to my ego, taking my life was more appealing to me than saying those things to her because of my level of hurt. But that night, when she got home, and uh, we were, she was sitting up in bed with the light on, and I was sitting on the other side of the bed facing the wall and fighting with God, as, as I imagine Jacob did when he fought the angel of the Lord all night. And without turning to her, I finally said those words. I said, God wants us to be together. Things are going to get better. We're going to grow old together. And she said, do you really think so? I said, yes, I do. Well, of course, you know, the rest of the story didn't work out at all. <laughs> Shelly's such a good sport. And we've been married almost 46 years. Sometimes what God asks us to do is really hard. But if we do it, it's really great. It's life-giving. And sometimes to do it, you have to see the future. You have to believe in the future. You have to talk about the future. That is the future God gives us. And the most glorious thing about that future is Jesus Christ. That's the anchor of everything that is good. And that is our confidence and our assurance because he is the resurrection and the life. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close in prayer. I want to remind you that after uh, we say amen, I'll be up here and so will other uh, members of uh, our leadership, uh, elders and deacons and their, their spouses and uh, also pastoral staff if you would like to, to pray with someone this morning. If you want to draw near to Jesus Christ, you want to know what I'm talking about this morning, uh, you want to pray for yourself or someone else, we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you. Your gospel is so powerful, so meaningful to us. Your love so, so strong. We thank you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, God bless you.